Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California will phase out sales of new gas-powered cars by 2035, calling it a much-needed step to address climate change. Will it work? What will it take to make the transition? And how will a mass need to charge up instead of fuel up change life in the Golden State? We'll talk about what the new rule means for drivers, the auto industry, gas stations, and hear from you Are you ready for a future without the option of buying a gas-powered car? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. If you buy a new car in a little over a decade from now, it'll have to be an electric or hydrogen-powered one. California has banned the sale of all new gas-powered cars by 2035. And the new rule has been hailed as a big moment for the world, a bold effort to address climate change. So let's get into the details. Here first to help us do that is Russ Mitchell, automotive reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Russ, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Good morning. Good morning. Tell us to start, what kinds of new gas-powered cars won't be for sale in California come 2035? Most of the cars that I'm going to, you mentioned hydrogen cars, which are very, at this point, a very, very tiny portion of uh, the total. So I'm going to just use electric cars as a a shorthand. In fact, those hydrogen cars have fuel cell electric batteries, so you can consider all of them to be electric. Um, basically, uh, any car that runs purely on uh, gasoline or diesel uh, will not be available for sale as a new car in, in 2035. There's a certain percentage of plug-in hybrid cars, which combine a battery, a plug-in battery with a uh, gasoline or diesel engine, usually gasoline. Uh, a, a 20% of those cars uh, uh, could be uh, qualified under the new law in 2035. Hmm. But and in addition, the ban on selling new gas powered cars doesn't mean you can't keep driving your gas powered car past 2035. And as I understand it, not even from buying a new one from another state, right, or a used gas powered car in California. That's right. If you drive a uh, gasoline powered car and you want to keep it, uh, you can keep driving it. If you want to sell it, you can sell it. If you want to buy a used gasoline car, you can do that. And uh, technically, you could go to another state, uh, it'd be a little bit complicated, and buy a gasoline car. Uh, however, many of the surrounding uh, states um, are likely to uh, follow California's lead on, uh, on this, uh, this gasoline ban. 
So it might not be so easy to go to another state to get your gas-powered car at that point. This is supposed to happen in phases. Can you talk about how we will get to 100% by 2035, meaning a total ban by 2035? Right. And I should emphasize that ban uh, is not directed at uh, consumers. It's directed on what manufacturers and dealers can sell. Yeah. Um, they have to meet uh, certain thresholds. By 2026, 35% uh, have to qualify. And by uh, uh, 2030, uh, 68% have to qualify. And then by the year 2035, uh, except for the previously mentioned uh, limited number of plug-in hybrids, uh, no gasoline-powered cars uh, can be sold new in the state. So how will California enforce this? Well, there's uh, uh, automakers could be charged uh, $20,000 for each a uh, car that uh, that uh, violates uh, this regulation, so they're likely to uh, not want to pay that penalty. It would uh, blow their profits uh, pretty seriously. We're talking with Russ Mitchell, an automotive reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and I want to bring a couple more people into the conversation now. Ethan Elkind is director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. Ethan, thanks so much for being on Forum. Hi, Mina. Great to join you. Great to have you back. Also, Margot Oge is with us. And Margot Oge is former director of the U.S. EPA Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Also author of the book, Driving the Future, Combating Climate Change with Cleaner, Smarter Cars. Margot Oge, really glad to have you on as well. Thank you. Good morning. So, as I mentioned, you worked at the EPA for decades, yes. focused on emissions and so on. How big a deal is this new California rule to you? This is pretty bold. And if I may say, this is probably uh, the most important single action that U.S. has taken today to reduce carbon pollution. And the reason I'm saying that is transportation is the top contributor of greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change. So we as a country, the planet as a whole, has to take steps to reduce carbon pollution from the transportation sector. What also makes this a big deal, and I think one of your uh, panelists also mentioned it, so California represents something like 10% of car sales in the U.S. Uh, but we know because of history and what other states have said that about 17 other states will adopt this California program so altogether, it will be about 40% uh, of cars sold in the U.S., which mm -hmm. will drive innovation, will drive the acceleration of electric vehicles, and clearly will transform the transportation sector. Yeah, well, Ethan, I'd love to get your take on that as well. We've already got comments coming in. For example, Ken tweets, the goal is to cut carbon emissions by 2030. After that is useless. Cutting gas cars by 2035 is too late. It should be 2025 so that by 2030, <laughs> most of the cars on the road are EV and a sustainable power grid. I should also tell listeners, if you want to post comments, you can do that at Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. <clears throat> Ethan, what do you think about the kind of goals that this, this rule is after and also the projections that they will reduce greenhouse gas emissions from cars by more than 50% by 2040? I mean, will it? 
Well, Margo is absolutely right. This is a really critical step to take for climate change. When you think about just California's carbon footprint, 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from driving. And if you add on the additional emissions from oil and gas production, the refineries that produce this fuel, it adds up to 50% of the state's carbon footprint comes from all the driving, mostly from the driving that we do. There's some other transportation emissions as well, but this gets at the bulk of it, which is those passenger vehicles. So it's a really critical step. I'm sympathetic to the listener that this is urgent. Climate change is getting worse. We're seeing it every day, no matter where you live on earth, it seems. But uh, the fact is we have to do this in a measured way. Uh, vehicles are a big purchase for many people. Not all of the models available right now are electric or zero emissions. So we have to do this over time. And so I think 2035 is a, is a reasonable goal. I'd also note you know, that the goal also requires that by 2026, 35% of new car sales have to be zero emission. That means if you go to a, a, a dealership in just a few years from now, you know, four years from now, a third of the vehicles are going to have to be zero emission. So there's some immediate goals here too that are are really critical. And you know, we're at 16% market share right now for you know new cars that are sold in the state are are, are plug-in or battery electric, but to jump to 35% and just four years is a big deal too. And then the last thing I'd say is just that this is not something that California is doing overnight here. This is part of a long uh, history, decades of regulations and increasingly more stringent standards on automakers to produce zero emission vehicles. And I think in a lot of ways, what we're seeing today with the real growth of zero emission vehicles is due to California's leadership Mm -hmm. that has been going on for decades to put these mandates on automakers. Yeah. And even, even this announcement didn't come as too much of a surprise for people who had followed Newsom's announcement two years ago uh, that this was coming. Uh, Do you want to just talk really quickly about the mechanisms that allow California to do this and that has allowed California to do in the past things that other states have not been able to do uh, with with basically the blessing of the federal government? Yeah, well, it really it all comes down to the Clean Air Act, the the United States Clean Air Act that passed, you know, back in the uh, in the uh, you know fifty years ago now that we've had the Clean Air Act on the books, and the Clean Air Act drafters in Congress recognized that California had a unique role to play in terms of environmental leadership and also a unique environmental challenge. You know, not everyone was alive or remembers that we had terrible smog, some of the worst air quality in the country here, and we took the initial steps to address smog that really helped inform what the Federal Clean Air Act became. And because of that leadership role and our unique environmental challenges here, Congress allowed for California to have a carve out that basically we could exceed national standards and set more aggressive emissions on things like tailpipes of vehicles. And because of that, we have to get a waiver from the federal government to do that. But that up until the George W. Bush administration was always kind of a no brainer. But uh, and the Trump administration also tried to claw that back. Mm -hmm. But we have a waiver from the federal government to do this. And we have that sovereignty to exceed national standards and set this sort of nation leading standard that, as Margot mentioned, and I think Russ as well, 17 other states have signed on. So it's a big deal. Of course, Margot, okay, you know that well as someone who worked at the EPA under Clinton and and Bush and Obama. And you touched on the 17 other states that are projected to introduce something like this as well. But I am curious if you could just talk a little bit more about what kind of commitment the federal government has and needs to make around this and, and why you believe this will have a big impact as well globally. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, let me try to respond to one of your listeners. Why not doing it earlier? Uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, We can't, you know. Technology was introduced about 12 years ago 
And what California is doing is very consistent with the Paris Accord that by 2050, we should have a carbon neutral uh, society, which means we should try to stay well below two two degrees Celsius. So what we're doing, what California is doing, other states are doing, Europe is doing, is not going to zero out climate change impacts. It's just going to avert the worst consequences of climate change. Now, um, as was mentioned earlier, California has led U.S., uh, and the con- not just the country, but the globe as a whole when it comes to environmental policies dealing with, with, with cars. Uh, the good news is that the timing of the California announcement could not have been more perfect. And let me say why. Uh, President Biden uh, signed into law an infrastructure bill of $7.5 billion. Uh, recently, he signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which has huge set of incentives for consumers, people live in um, uh, low-income um, communities, people, people of color, uh, huge incentives for investments, uh, for the car manufacturers, for batteries, to make sure that the U.S. can compete in the global scene, because right now we're behind China a big time and we're behind Europe. Uh, and also President Biden has given the Environmental Protection Agency an executive order that by 2030, EPA should put a regulation in place. Actually, the regulation is going to place um, proposal next year, uh, hopefully by April of 2024, a final action that will set uh, similar requirements to California, not as ambitious, but by 2030, Hmm. uh, the federal government, all states, uh, will uh, only allow sales of 50% cars that are zero emissions. So it could be 50% of gasoline and 50% of zero emissions. My hope, <laughs> have served as a director of this office for 20 years, is that eventually the federal government, the car manufacturers, and California will harmonize the program. It will be mm. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Outdoor activities could be more dangerous than fun this Labor Day. California's getting hit with extreme temperatures this coming holiday weekend. We'll hear how state and local officials are responding and how Californians will need to adapt as climate change exacerbates extreme heat. Today, we're talking about California banning the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035 in an effort to address 
climate change. And we're talking with Russ Mitchell, automotive reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Margot Oge, former director of the U.S. EPA Office of Transportation and Air Quality under Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. Ethan Elkind is with us, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law, also host of the podcast Climate Break. And you, our listeners, we would like you to also join the conversation with your thoughts on these new rules on gas-powered vehicles in 2035. Curious how you'll be affected. If you drive an electric car, you can tell us what you think of it. If not, what's stopping you from driving an electric car? And you can even share reflections about what you'll miss about having a gas-powered car, as we've seen some of those crop up since uh, this rule was announced. You can always email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Or you can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Janine writes, I've had an all-electric vehicle since 2017, and I'd never go back to gasoline. From being liberated to not have to buy gas to the carpool lane privileges, it's been great. I support California's bold move. We have to be leaders for stopping rampant climate change in a nation that can't act its way out of petty partisanship, lest we face climate devastation. Just like with fuel standards in the 1970s, where California goes, so goes the nation. Eventually, <laughs> Russ, I'm curious, how many people in California already own electric or zero emissions vehicles? I'm not sure what the exact number is, but it's uh, 16% of uh, uh, car buyers in the state own uh, an electric car. I should say the new sales uh, of uh, yeah. cars are are electric uh, or uh, plug-in hybrid. Yeah, and 16 or fuel cell reflects steady growth from say like I think your reporting had in 2012 it was two percent and then in 2018 seven percent. So it's you know it's getting there, but it does sound like there is a long way to go. Deborah writes, for example, I would love to make my next car an electric one. However, I am a longtime renter in the city and I don't have a parking place. I'm lucky if I can find a spot on my block. The charging issue is real and needs to be resolved in order for electric to be practical for people like me. I mean, I know you know this is a really big deal, both Ethan and Margo. Margo, really quickly, you wrote a whole book on on electric yeah, vehicles yeah. and other smart cars. Yeah. Just talk about some of the inconveniences that people have pointed out yeah. about electric vehicles in terms of charging yeah. and time it takes and so on. Yeah. Listen, infrastructure is, is a deal. And it's not just infrastructure, but also the quality uh, the ability for people to go to figure out how to use it and be able to successfully, you know, power their vehicle. Uh, California sits pretty good as far as I'm concerned. You know, uh, the state has done an incredible job with, uh, you know, with um, uh, state money for charging. Uh, the hope is that President Biden's 500,000 uh, infrastructure um, places across the country by 2030 will help. In, in a big way. So this is, but we cannot wait, am I right? California cannot wait until all the infrastructure is in place to put those requirements. So it takes a, a very careful planning by everybody, you know, by the state, by cities, local governments, the private sector utilities have a role to play. And so do so does do the, uh, you know, car companies. Tesla has done a fantastic job, but not everybody can afford a Tesla. So mm -hmm. I think this is uh, this is an issue, it's a real issue, but it's not an issue 
in my view, that if the planning takes place carefully and everybody works together, that we should not move forward with accelerating uh, the adoption of electric vehicles across Let the me, board, not California. Yeah. Let me go to Carlene and Marin. Hi, Carlene. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. Go right yes, ahead. I can Okay, yeah, so my nonprofit, Cool the Earth, um, we work with thousands of drivers helping them go electric, and we heard back from many of them and experienced it personally that there were uh, problems at charging stations, which is a major equity issue when your caller said multifamily. We did a study with UC Berkeley in February and found that about a quarter of the stations uh, were not able to charge a car. These are non-Tesla public charging stations. Um, so we've been advocating that new federal and state contracts have 97% uptime, they're field verified, third party, um, maintenance is funded. This wasn't done before. There wasn't any maintenance funding. Um, and that Tesla opens up because that'll be great competition. So uh, the Energy Commission in California started to implement a 97% uptime, but with the federal regulations coming out, um, we're really hoping to see that in the federal regulations and then California really step up from there with much more stringent uh, requirements. So we make sure these stations are reliable. Yeah. Uh, Carlene, you're bringing up a lot of interesting points. And Ethan, uh, your response to what Carlene is saying and also just any more you want to add about what's being done about the infrastructure around charging. Well, it is definitely one of the big hurdles for many consumers, particularly those who are renting or don't have a dedicated parking spot that has access to electricity. So this is something that we do need to figure out and solve. And there has been a major investment over the last few years, not just this federal investment that Margo's talking about, but utilities and automakers and third parties have been investing in the charging infrastructure. But a lot of it is going to be about uh, high-powered, fast chargers that are available for apartment dwellers. So maybe while they're going grocery shopping, they can plug in for 15, 20 minutes, get a full charge or at workplaces, you know, as people start commuting again to their offices, they can charge during the day in a company parking lot. You know, that kind of solution is, is going to be key. But this is a big issue about the functionality of these non-Tesla uh, EV chargers. So I'm glad uh, your caller brought that up. And, you know, some of this is that we have to keep in mind that for the legacy auto industry, they've really been dragged kicking and screaming to this point. It was just a few years ago that many of the major automakers were siding with the Trump administration trying to roll back back California's ability to set standards just like this. And they were really just trying to sell the minimum, the bare minimum number of electric vehicles possible to comply with California's targets. And so they kind of left the charging infrastructure to other companies to figure out, unlike mm -hmm. Tesla that recognized that to sell these vehicles, they needed to invest in the chargers. And so we we do need to do better a better job at making sure the existing charging network is functional, is ubiquitous and convenient for people. But I think there's a lot of upside here. Yeah. Because, you know, with this big investment in new chargers, you're going to see a lot of innovation. The charging speeds are going to increase. So the deployment's going to happen. And once you have all these consumers needing a place to charge, a lot of businesses are going to want to attract those customers to charge in their parking lots. Well, David writes, there's no way California will be able to support a transition to electric cars without adding millions and millions of vehicle charging stations. BART needs to convert all parking lots into electric vehicle charging stations, not luxury housing uh, Russ, Ethan brought up a lot of interesting things, and in, in, in particular about the auto industry. And I just want you to put that in context for us a little bit. Just how much influence does California wield? You know, how much power do we have in terms of really making the auto industry move? 
Well, given the uh, the the carve out uh, previously mentioned um, about the ability to set its own standards and allow other states to follow, it's got uh, huge, huge um, power in that regard. Uh, speaking of the automakers, I just just to uh, uh, dice uh, the issue a little bit uh, more finely. There were automakers such as General Motors and Toyota that sided uh, with the Trump administration. Uh, seeking uh, to to deprive Californians of or California politicians of setting uh, these terms, but there were also companies that are uh, in a better leadership position uh, in electric cars like uh, Ford and Volkswagen, BMW, uh, that actually sided with California and are enthusiastic about the uh, 2035 uh, bill or 2035 regulations. Yeah, well. Uh- let me go to GS in South Lake Tahoe. Hi, GS. Hey, very good. I am really excited about the prospect of owning an all-electric vehicle. A friend of mine uh, already owns a Tesla, and he's in bliss. He just <laughs> loves riding that thing around. He lives in Silicon Valley, and I worked there for 42 years. Anyway, um, I have retired a few years now, and after moving to South Lake Tahoe, where we maybe have, I don't know, five chargers and 20,000 people that use them, um, I've set my sights anyway on an all-electric truck. I think that's of interest. Uh, uh, there's a, a Ford 150 has been one of the most popular trucks forever, and now they have an all-electric one. I don't mean to advertise. But anyway, I would <laughs> love yeah. to get some kind of all-electric truck. Yeah, well, that's what you're excited well, about. And actually, Russ, Ford is one of the automakers, unlike Toyota, that is really excited about this, right? Or is embracing this change that California is introducing here with this rule? Yes, absolutely. Ford is probably the most enthusiastic of all the car makers. But, Margot, okay, you you raised the point that not everyone can afford an electric car. I think you said not everyone can afford a Tesla. And that is a common complaint about electric vehicles not being cheap. Can you talk a little bit about that and mm-hmm. what needs to be done to address the issue of cost? Yes. So, first of all, a couple of thoughts. You know, gasoline costs, uh, the price keeps on going up, you know. Today, an average gasoline car is about $46,000. When it comes to an electric car, on an average, maybe $60,000. But you can get a GM, a Chevy Bolt, for $26,000, which is the same cost as Toyota Camry. Uh, we expect, many experts believe that by 24 timeframe, uh, there's going to be a cost parity, that is, you know, the gasoline model will be the same price as as an electric car. But one thing that people need to realize, the upfront price may be higher, but um, I live outside of Los Angeles. Um, I charge my my electric car any time in the day and night, except between four and nine o'clock. And Mm -hmm. I get something like $2 per per gallon equivalent. You know, you you cannot find this kind of gasoline price (laughs) in California or any part of the country. Plus, maintenance is half of the cost. So the cost of ownership on an electric car is much significantly lower uh, than the cost of, 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 of a gasoline car. So my hope is that in the next couple of years, we're going to see huge reductions in price. And one more thing I was going to say about car companies. As a regulator, uh, I have never seen the car industry being uh, some of them ahead of the government in, in, in US, in, in, in Europe, and in, in China. Altogether, these companies are investing globally over $500 billion by 2026, huge amount of money, because they know the future is 
to decarbonize their products and to electrify vehicles. So government, California, uh, the federal government, car companies, for the most part, they are on the same page. The only kind of negativism that I have heard about this is from the oil industry, because guess what? We're not, you know, the more electric cars we have, the less, you know, toxic, you know, gasoline and diesel we're going to burn. So that's, I think, the play out of the California's proposal and yeah. final action. Well, Ethan Alkine, it's great to hear from Margot that the auto industry is moving in ways that hasn't been really seen before. Um, but at the same time, they are going to need people to really want these vehicles. And they only have so much control over how much they will cost because isn't a large part of the cost of an electric vehicle the battery? Well, absolutely, that's correct. It is the most expensive component in there. I mean, otherwise, actually, these electric vehicles are much simpler and cheaper than right. an internal combustion engine. They have something like 10% of the movable parts that an internal combustion engine uh, requires, and that actually means they're pretty maintenance-free as a result. There's not a lot less stuff that can break down in an electric vehicle. But the battery is the big thing. That's a, a, both a good thing and a bad thing. It's it's bad in the sense that it is uh, an expensive proposition right now. However, it's good in the sense that we've seen the prices of batteries come down dramatically in the last 10 years, almost 85, 90% price decreases. Recently, there's been more of a supply shock like we've seen in many different industries. And so those prices haven't been coming down as much. But I think given that the uh, the, the vast reserves of minerals out there and the sort of untapped reserves to help uh, build these batteries and the new manufacturing facilities that we're seeing being announced, it seems almost weekly in the United States. I think there's a lot of hope that battery production is going to not only come down in price, but be something that's based locally here in the United States to help ensure that we've got good jobs, per, and especially in some of these rural areas that have really been left out of our economy over the past few decades. Uh, and also from a national security perspective, we won't be as dependent on regions that are petroleum rich anymore for our energy. We can we can get that energy locally from locally produced electricity and from minerals that are produced among, if not in the United States, and among our free trade partners. Yeah, well, you do bring up the supply chain issues that could be a wrinkle uh, with regard to batteries. The other thing is, yes, we do have partners in the world, but China does dominate the minerals market, doesn't it? <laughs> and I, it they, I, I do you know, wonder if you could lay out some of the concerns that have been raised about that. Well, it's very true. China has been very savvy about this, you know, and, and these lithium ion batteries that power electric vehicles, they're the same things that power our laptops, our, our uh, phones and, and all these consumer electronic devices. In fact, that's where lithium ion batteries really started to take off with consumer electronics, you know, in the 1990s. And China really foresaw what was happening and bought up a lot of the, not only the processing facilities, which are really uh, the majority of which for, for batteries, minerals are located in China and also in, uh, Korea and Japan. So East Asia really has a, a, a bit of a chokehold on the on the market for processing these minerals. But they've also bought up mining operations. For example, many of the uh, cobalt mines in the Congo, which is where most of the cobalt comes from, that's owned by the Chinese. So they were very smart and got out ahead of this. So we have to play catch up now mm -hmm. in the United States. And it's it's a national security issue. It's a reliability of these supplies issue. And, and like I said, it's a big opportunity economically for the United States as well. It, it doesn't have to stay this way, but we do need to play catch up because mm. China did see this coming. Let me go to caller Jim in El Cerrito. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I was wondering that in 2050, 
I'm wondering what happens after 15 years of everyone having electric, what happens to those batteries? I'd hate to see what we do with our Mm. current automobile batteries going to India and those poor little kids breaking them up. Uh, Jim, thanks for the... where Where do those batteries go? Yeah, well, battery disposal, I'll I'll just go right back to you, Ethan, really quick, just because that has been raised as a real concern. I actually think it's a great opportunity because these batteries can be recycled. And there are some estimates that we could get potentially 25% of the demand for new minerals from recycled minerals. So it takes a lot of pressure off of new mining if we can recycle these batteries. And there's a lot of innovation happening now to recycle the batteries. Uh, so And they can also be reused in some cases. Uh, so they may not be great in a vehicle, but they might be great uh, stacked together as a way to support the grid during, you know, to avoid blackouts, things like that. So uh, we don't have to assume that these batteries are going to end up in developing world countries. And in fact, I think there'll be a strong economic need to keep them local where they can be recycled and put right back into the supply chain. Well, and if I may yes, add, please, Margo. If I may add, my discussions with um, uh, car companies, car manufacturers, um, I would agree uh, what has been stated. Uh, you know, th- these batteries are, are containing very precious mineral materials, lithium, cobalt. So these companies are going to recycle, but there will be a second um, use for this for these batteries, you know, for backup power and so forth. So uh, we're not going to see this, hopefully we're not going to see the same issues that we have seen in the past with people throwing out, you know, uh, cell phones and, and, and batteries piling up. But you, but the listener has a very good point in, in raising this issue. And this is a question that has come to me time after time um, by various people that concern about, about recycling batteries and where it's going to take place. Yeah. Well, Kelly writes, I already have an electric motorcycle, and when I can get an electric four-wheeler that both suits my needs and isn't obscenely expensive, I'll be delighted to replace my diesel truck. I embrace the electric future. We'll hear more from you, our listeners, and from our guests, Margot Oge, Ethan Elkind, and Russ Mitchell after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the new California regulation that will ban the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. We're looking at the impact of the rule 
and what it will take to make the transition to do it successfully. I'm joined by Marco Oge, former director of the U.S. EPA Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Ethan Elkine, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. And Russ Mitchell, automotive reporter for the Los Angeles Times. You, our listeners, are with us telling us what you think of these new rules or the questions that you have around them. How might you be affected? If you drive an electric car or don't and want to tell us what's stopping you, you can. Or if you want to reflect on the gas-powered car, you can as well. Call 866-733-6786, 6786 Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. We've got lots of them. Let me go to Alex in Castro Valley. Hi, Alex. Hey, how you doing? Well, um, so I, I, one of the comments I had was, you know, with I just bought a Model 3 Tesla, and I love the car. The only problem that you're looking at is with the temperatures raising and with the increased demand for the electricity due to the electrical vehicles. We haven't really thought. I just sent an email out to Newsom's office about possibly putting in solar charging stations. We got to beefen up the grid so that we can actually be able to supply the electricity because per thousand people, we're looking at increased demand for electricity substantially higher than what we're currently at, especially yeah. with the production of the EV vehicles. So, and the last thing, I was also looking at smaller vehicles too, even though I bought the Tesla, but I was also looking at the Nimbus one, which is a very small compact car, which actually is more like a motorcycle. And then also the Aptera, which is actually solar charging 40 miles per day. Yeah. Well, Alex, thanks. Uh, Thanks for telling us that. And you raise a lot of important things. It's being echoed by this listener, Holly, who writes, I've had the same Prius since 2008, and I love it. I'm a climate change advocate, yet am concerned about California and the rest of the country not having enough clean energy and, more importantly, not enough transmission to bring us the electricity. What happens if we have brown and blackouts and can't charge our cars? What planning is going on to ensure that we have the transmission to carry all the green energy we need to electrify transportation? and everything else. Uh, it's Ethan, it's a question that comes up often, whether we can handle it <laughs> in terms of yeah. our grid in California. I mean, we're, well, we're getting, be... yeah, the state officials talking about how we have to be careful with the heat we're going to have. And that we're always <laughs> going to have. I was just going to say, I mean, this is, uh, you know, an issue coming up just potentially in a few days as climate change is making these really dramatic heat events happen all across the West. We have less power available that we can even import from other states. So power grid reliability is a, a big question that comes up. And the estimates are that overall demand for electricity by 2035, if we truly electrify the entire fleet, is going to increase about 30%. So uh, it's definitely going to be a big increase in demand, but this is not an unmanageable problem. It's it basically means that it's a few percentage points of increased demand each year. And energy regulators are well aware of this. And we're trying to procure as much renewable energy as we can, not just to keep our existing lights on, but to keep the vehicles of tomorrow fueled. And a big challenge here is really going to be about deployment. You know, we've got to deploy a lot of renewable energy facilities, a lot of wind, both on the land and offshore now being proposed. That's all going to be critical to meet this demand from 
from electric vehicles, but it is a manageable thing. And particularly if we get our electricity rates right. So for example, in the middle of the day, there's a lot of solar power available. And in certain times of year, there's not enough demand, uh, electricity demand, even soak up that solar power that we're generating. So we want to encourage electric vehicles to charge in the middle of the day as much as possible. That's a great way to manage it. Also, the vehicles themselves can be a resource to help us actually keep the lights on. A lot of vehicle manufacturers are looking into options to actually discharge power from the batteries into the grid. And that could help keep the lights on when you have these big heat events like we're likely to have here in the next few days. And you can also moderate the charging so you can make money if you sign up for programs that tells the grid operator to turn your car charging on or off and you get paid as a result. So imagine if, you know, at 6 p.m. one day, all of a sudden the grid is constrained, you could send a message to a million vehicles to pause their charging for an hour. That's a very flexible resource that can actually help keep the lights on. But there's no question deployment of the renewable energy facilities is a big question mark. It's not enough just to put money into these things. We also need to figure out how we actually get these projects permitted and built as quickly as possible. Yeah, can, well, I ju- this- can I jump in with Go some, ahead, Russ. some journalistic cynicism? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ethan's, Ethan's, Ethan's perfectly right. These are manageable problems. However, there are uh, several huge problems that need to be addressed. And uh, uh, there are lots of moving parts to achieve uh, what the state wants to achieve by 2035. So you've got uh, the expense, you've got the battery supply, you've got material supply, you've got the whole charger issue, and you've got the uh, electrical demand issue in a state that botched uh, electricity deregulation and has allowed Pacific Gas and Electric to uh, avoid maintenance so that uh, they've been setting fires across the state. there are a lot of reasons to uh, be wary about whether all of this is going to uh, come into place and whether these manageable problems will in fact be managed. So it, uh, uh, I would avoid getting all utopian about it. I think it's, uh, it'd be great if all this happened, but I think that the citizens of California need to pay real close attention to what the politicians and regulators and, uh, are, are doing in yeah. order to, uh, to, to, to set the stage for this. We just did a show about what you described about PG&E on Monday. Um, And here's some more really important questions. Lisa writes, a friend and I were having a discussion about electric vehicles and the sources of electricity needed to charge them. Her assertion was that solar panels are going to cause a lot of toxic waste. Is this true? And what is going to be the cleanest source of electricity for charging electric vehicles? Rongo, okay, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but I mean, the idea of zero emission can be kind of questionable when we are generating electricity, say, from coal or oil or other dirtier materials. Not, yeah. Well, let me make, let's say this. Nothing can be more hazardous to our health, to our environment, to the planet than burning fossil fuel, gasoline, diesel, and coal. Um, we know that renewable energy, um, solar, wind, um, hydropower, I would even say nuclear, uh, is the way to to power our economy. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, again, you know, and I just want to say one more thing about the previous discussion that, and I don't want to be a very optimistic person, but when it comes to the grid, and I'm just a recent, uh, recently I moved to Los Angeles from Washington, D.C., a couple of things that I want to note. First, the Energy uh, Commission in California said that it will take about less than 3% of uh, increased peak use 
by 2030. Second, they're investing something like $4 billion uh, in infrastructure. Um, and third, um, something that was mentioned earlier, and I'm going to mention it again, the, the most important thing that utilities are worrying right now is not how many electric vehicles are charged on a daily basis, but when do we charge those vehicles? So, so the consumer uh, has to be knowledgeable about this. It's important to, to plug in your in our vehicles when it's not peak demand time. Yeah, well, those are all important strategies that we need to try to use. But I don't know, Ethan, if you want to say any more about the concerns people have about the source for the electricity to power these cars. Well, in California and really the nation as a whole, our grid is getting increasingly cleaner, I mean, by the day. So in California, our goal is to have a completely decarbonized electricity grid by 2045. And we've got interim targets of 60% renewable energy by 2030. Uh, we're basically off of coal-fired power in California. There's you know one exception in Los Angeles where they've been importing coal-fired power for to meet part of their demand, but that's that's phasing out uh, in the next few years. So, And the United States as a whole has been phasing out coal-fired power. Power, partly because the economics of running the coal-fired power plants is, just doesn't work out compared to natural gas. So the next step here for the electricity grid is really to get more build-out of renewable energy and energy storage, because that wind and, and solar is not always going to be available. So we need to store it when we have surpluses to use when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. And actually, electric vehicles are a solution to that, because the research that's gone and the investment that's gone into electric vehicle batteries has increased the market for stationary storage batteries, lithium-ion batteries, so battery packs on, on homes, big mega uh, storage facilities with lithium-ion batteries. Those have all been economically feasible in part because the electric vehicle demand has spurred the investment in that cheaper form of battery storage, although we need all types of energy storage, not just batteries, and the grid is getting a lot cleaner. So I don't think there should be any concern around the fuel switching because electricity is so much cleaner than, uh, than petroleum fuel. Uh, Dana in Palo Alto, thanks for waiting. Hi, Dana. Hi. Yeah, we've had a cute little uh, Fiat 500 EV since 2015. We initially leased it, and we loved it so much that we bought a used one, for which we only paid $8,000. It had 30,000 miles on it, but it was like brand new. And we have solar panels, so we uh, charge from that, and um, we don't. We have a charger that came with the car, and that just plugs in uh, in the garage at a regular outlet, and just charges overnight. And it is slow, but that that suits our needs just fine. Hmm. And um, anyway, we love this car, and we're, we've have really never taken it in for repairs, except for a couple of tail light bulbs in the seven years that we've had them. And so we're we're quite happy with our car. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Dan, <laughs> thanks can for I, calling. Can uh, I, well, can I add something to that? <laughs> Go right ahead, Russ. <laughs> yeah, the uh, she she makes a good point. And yes, the uh, electric cars are very expensive, but the average cost uh, figures in things like the electric Hummer and uh, very expensive Tesla cars. But uh, if anybody's interested in an electric car now, uh, cars like a uh, used Nissan Leaf are just a great deal and uh, a Chevy Bolt EV, a uh, great deal. And I should add, people are talking about the 2008 car, their 2015 car, whether you have a gasoline car or an electric car, the most eco thing you can do 
is to keep it until it falls apart. Because if you buy an electric car to save the environment, you're selling your gasoline car to somebody else who's going to run it. And you're paying for all the greenhouse gases that have gone into manufacturing the electric car. So uh, the most eco thing you can do, keep your car until it doesn't run anymore. Well, <laughs> Kyler writes, I think the new rule is great. No question EV technology is ready for ground transportation and it'll be great for urban air quality. My concern, though, is that people are overstating how much their ground transportation contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. If you regularly eat meat or fly internationally at all, then switching to an EV has almost no impact on your total emissions. We are talking about California's new rule banning the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. And you, our listeners, are weighing in with your thoughts and experiences. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Tara in Novato next. Hi, Tara. Hi. Uh, so I've, I recently um, switched to uh, two electric cars, um, both uh, Kias, and um, couldn't be happier with them. I've already done some, you know, road trips with with both cars and had no issues charging. I know a lot of discussion around, you know, how are we going to have all these different vehicles charging and take so long to charge. Um, the the one car that I'm in at the moment, sitting in the car charging right now, <laughs> will uh, char- fully charge in um, 15 minutes. So uh, it it um, I think that the discussion. I mean, as cars are improving the battery life and the, the range are improving and the charging stations themselves are improving. I yeah. think that people's fears around that are, um, you know, are, are not going to be warranted. Tara, thanks. I got to ask you, Russ, though, are what's going to happen to gas stations and are gas stations sort of redefining themselves to be charging stations or something else? Yeah, that, that's uh, gas station owners are asking themselves uh, that question very uh, seriously. Um, as we talked about early in the program, uh, gasoline cars are going to be on the road for decades to come. So there will be uh, a need for gasoline stations for, for a long time. Uh, some gasoline owners, uh, station owners are already putting in uh, EV charging platforms or fuel cell hydrogen uh, pumps. Um, and uh, oil companies, including Shell, are uh, experimenting with uh, adding adding um, uh, electric chargers to their stations. And uh, anybody who uh, subscribes to the LA Times might watch because uh, a colleague of mine is doing a story about this very question, how gas station owners are going to deal with this. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is there's going to be workforce changes in the auto industry. And then another listener here, Joan, uh, is asking what happens to car garages? It could be less demand for repair services and so on. So if you want to add anything about how the workforce changes that will need to be made that we haven't touched on yet, Russ, please do. Oh, those are also very serious issues because, uh, I mean, uh, dealers, uh, car dealers make most of their money from uh, servicing cars. So if the uh, car needs less service, uh, that's less money. Um, the uh, me- mechanics, uh, the, the, we talked about how much more complicated internal combustion engines are. If they're less complicated, it'll be easier to fix and you will be, uh, you'll need fewer mechanics. So um, yes, this is as technology uh, marches through our lives. Uh, it does destroy jobs. Uh, it also creates jobs and what the net effect uh, will be in the future, uh, uh, only the future will tell. Well, we've got a lot of people. Well, actually, interestingly, we have somebody who uh, works as a as a car 
person and all of a sudden now I can oh here it is a listener writes as a retired mechanic I'm telling you we are getting pages of comments here that scrolling through them uh, has been a challenge the listener writes as a retired mechanic I applaud the advent of electric cars I don't think the general public realizes how much money they're going to save due to the simplicity of the electric vehicles as far as affordability there will be used car market for electric cars just there is now for your present day cars so underscoring your point there uh, Russ Christopher writes, I'm a car enthusiast. I totally understand and support the fight against climate change. So I believe that cars and trucks used for commuting business and errands should be non-carbon emitting vehicles. However, I do believe that specialty cars that enthusiasts occasionally use should be allowed to stay on the road and not be penalized. Margot Ogie, I know that you are a car enthusiast as well. Uh, what do you want to say about your experience driving an electric vehicle? I love it. I, I, unfortunately, not many people are familiar uh, with electric cars. I think there is uh, something like 50% of the American public uh, doesn't know, doesn't understand uh, what an electric car is all about. So, we, you know, so I'm, I'm so glad to, uh, to be, um, to participate in, in, in the discussion today. Um, other than, you know, I'm, I'm an environmentalist, obviously, you know, I have driven every clean car that I could get my hands on. But set, setting that aside, you know, you drive an electric car and it has uh, the best torque. Like people love diesel cars because of the torque. It's very powerful, behaves very well. It's silent. It doesn't create any emissions. And, uh, you know, in a year or two, uh, electric cars are going to be the same cost, the same upfront price as a, as, as a gasoline car. So we do a lot by investing in electric cars. Um, as far as jobs, uh, some jobs will go, but better jobs are going to be created. Uh, union um, um, factory workers across the country support President Biden um, in his efforts and the state of California in their efforts to electrify um, personal vehicles. It's good for the planet. It's good for health. It's good for the economy. Margo Oge. Margo Oge is former director of the U.S. EPA Office of Transportation and Air Quality. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you also, Ethan Elkind, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law, also host of Climate Break. And Russ Mitchell, always glad to have your journalistic cynicism and reporting as well, automotive reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in and sharing your questions and reflections. You have been listening to Forum. Grace Wan produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. 
Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. 